making that push to get the U.S. market such a big one uh, for them to have, especially when you're owned by an American like media conglomerate, right? Like it's it's so important for Formula One to be a big sport in the United States, and they need to introduce it into some bigger markets where um, they can attack. I guess a different audience and pull in a younger audience as well and go to places where there's more population. I mean, we saw that with uh, IndyCar, you know, when they really started to introduce the street circuits, they were bringing IndyCar to the people. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Backmarkers F1 Show podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cato. I'm going to be joined by my fellow backmarker, Tyler McDonald, in just a minute, and also a very special guest for this little special edition series on our podcast, Motorsport in North America, where ahead of, of course, the two North American races this season on the F1 calendar, the United States Grand Prix and the Mexican Grand Prix, we thought this would be a perfect opportunity to talk about how the situation of motorsport in North America sits at the moment, not just Formula One, but also IndyCar, a little bit of NASCAR talk, and also just looking at the general direction of F1's popularity rise in North America. So we thought one of the best people to talk to about motorsport in North America is none other than a former racing driver himself and one of the lead journalists and analysts covering motorsport, especially here in Canada, but also North America as well. Returning on the Backmarkers F1 Show podcast, Mr. Tim Haraney. We appreciate your time, Tim. How are you doing today? Hey, good. Thanks very much, Chris. Really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely, man. We're really excited for this conversation. Me and Tyler pretty much kind of hatched this idea in the, the middle of a podcast when we were recording a few weeks ago, <laughs> and uh, and I'm glad that Tyler suggested it and so happy that we're doing this here today. So in this first part of the conversation, we're going to be focusing mainly on Formula One, and then in the second part of our conversation, we're going to branch out into some other different series like IndyCar, for example, and we're also going to bring it home here in Canada in relation to some of the potential tracks that are being built in our home country and also just motorsport in Canada as well. So let's first of all start off with just the 2021 championship in itself, Tim. We spoke with you last time in preseason testing and it was funny going back listening to some of the things that you were talking about during preseason testing just to see where we are now. So I just want to start off with your general thoughts on this championship and living up to your expectations so far. Yeah, absolutely. It's been incredible. I mean, you have to really think about how far back do you go where you actually see two drivers that are just really pushing each other as much as Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton are. I mean, it's been incredible. I can only, you know, for my, for me, I can only go back to like the days of like Prost and Senna, you know, and I was lucky enough to remember like what was kind of going on at that time. I think I was probably like eight or nine years old or something like that. But uh, I still remember, you know, those championship battles and then reliving it, obviously, with all the old vintage tapes that are out there that I do still watch every every once in a while, which is pretty incredible. But, um, yeah, I've never seen anything like this in such a long time where two, I guess now you can call them rivals, are literally just pushing each other and pushing each other off the track. (laughs) Well, I find it really interesting, too, the dynamic they've, kind of had these last few months because they get really aggressive with each other and then kind of do that old behind the back bickering and then once they're with each other they're their best buddies and you know try to 
tone down the situation like nothing's happening. It's a really interesting dynamic. And I don't really remember anything like it so much. I mean, when you had Vettel and Weber, those two were just obviously not getting along on the cameras, off the cameras, on the track. And in this dynamic, even the Lewis Rosberg situation was still, you know, they weren't getting along in general. Where with Max and Lewis, it seems like when they're doing interviews, you know, when they're together, they get along. But, you know, all of a sudden there'll be backhanded comments here and there against each other. One of the things, you know, you bring up a good point. You know, if you go all the way back and, you know, you think about that Rosberg and Hamilton rivalry, obviously they had the best equipment, the best car, best engine from that span of, you know, whatever it was, 2014 to 2016 when Rosberg won. I mean, you always knew what you were going to get from, say, Lewis Hamilton, every racetrack you showed up to. You just weren't too sure what you were going to get from Miko Rosberg because of how evenly matched the two of them were. It was, you know, how fast could Rosberg get to engineering the car to get himself up to speed so he could challenge you know, Lewis Hamilton, not to say that, you know, Nico Rosberg's not like a great race car driver. What I'm saying is, is that, you know, he drives a little bit differently. He needed the car to be engineered a little bit more to his driving style, where Lewis just took whatever he had and wrung its neck. You're seeing the same thing with Verstappen, where every weekend you kind of show up. It's never like, ooh, you know, is it going to take Verstappen a couple sessions here to kind of get the car tuned into where he wants it to, where he's on the same pace as Lewis? Uh, and then Lewis, you don't even need to worry about, it. you know, he's always going to be there. Even if, you know, he struggles in free practice one, free practice two, you know, he's going to be around for qualifying. So that's, that's what I mean when I, when I say these two, these two drivers pushing each other to that absolute sort of limit, because for a driver like Verstappen, he's just naturally talented. He'll make anything go fast. And the same goes for, uh, for Lewis Hamilton. And Tim, I wanted to save this question to you because you have the very unique perspective, of course, being a former driver yourself, racing at very high levels in open wheel and other series as well. Can you speak a little bit to what was a big talking point heading into the Russian Grand Prix, which was the pressure of this championship? Lewis Hamilton saying that Max Verstappen, even though he's hiding it, he's feeling it. Verstappen kind of laughed it off saying that he doesn't know me. But we have seen mistakes from the both of these drivers whether it be Lewis Hamilton in Imola, whether it be Max Verstappen running wide on lap one in France. Can you talk about as a driver, how do you deal with that pressure when you enter the cockpit of the car, especially when you're in a close championship? And does that pressure sometimes lead to these types of mistakes? Or are us as media just kind of blowing everything just way out of proportion or just trying to make stories out of nothing? Yeah, no, definitely not blowing anything out of proportion. I mean, at some points or another in a very tight championship battle, you know, drivers will feel it. It doesn't matter when or where. That's just automatically going to happen. It's part of uh, it's part of the job, and you need to figure out how you're going to be able to handle that. I mean, for someone like myself, it was always good to have, I would say, good structure around. So I always knew my days were always really planned. They, even down to the hour, I always knew where I was going to be, what I was going to be eating, making sure my routine stayed the same, making sure that my media availability stayed the same. It didn't get blown out of proportion. I wasn't talking to too many people at too many times. Same with autograph sessions. You knew when they were, you knew where you had to be. And that was, that was sort of it. Um, and just understanding that once you get into the car, that's your job. 
right? You're, that's your office. That's where you come to work. Everything else gets, gets shut out. It's a selfish world at that point. You need to worry about yourself. And obviously, you need to worry about the team in, in some respects. But as a driver, I mean, that's, that's the focus, right? You need to get the best out of yourself and out of the car. Now, <clears throat> perfect example, I guess. You know, and I, I'm pretty sure Lewis will probably, you know, say no to this. But when, you know, he cranked the pit wall uh, during entry, you know, you know that, like, that, that has something to do with it. It doesn't matter, like, where... Or, or or when he, he did it, that, that is a clear sign that there's pressure on somewhere, some way, and somehow, because he needed to get pole position. Right, guys? Like, he needed it. And then we know oh. what happened. So. Yeah, well, not only did it mess up his qualifying, messed up his, his teammates, too, which completely sewered their race uh, absolutely well, yeah, at least sure. from what we thought and then well then <laughs> look what happened <laughs> just throw a sprinkle of rain in there um obviously this whole championship fight leads to great viewership for the viewers and we've really seen a ratings increase here in north america uh over this past year two years i'd say uh but really this year i've noticed it i mean i've seen a lot of friends who were never interested in racing at all who have watched drive to survive or now have gotten into uh, formula one and I, I couldn't help but think like what a perfect <laughs> year to do it because if they did this in like 2014 or like 2017 2018 i would have been like oh boy we're in trouble <laughs> they're not going to stick around but now i think they'll stick around because uh, of the awesome championship fight how much does that championship fight play into these ratings boosts yeah that's a great question because it, it i think it does i think it matters a lot because you know if we go all the way back guys to like the days of you know sh the schumacher you know dominance and things of that nature you can see on twitter or social media anywhere nowadays where some of those some of those folks from that era are are worried that it's kind of like ah oh, this is going to end the same it's just going to be lewis hamilton winning again and that's not you know this is going to be a lot more exciting but you know once I would say Silverstone happened, then <laughs> I knew we were in for something that was a little bit more, a little bit different, and we were going to see uh, a different sort of championship because I believe it was at that moment where Hamilton ended up taking the lead back in the championship at that point. And so I was like, yeah, this is going to go back and forth. And I really do see it going all the way uh, to the very end, which is great because you hold on to that audience you hold on to uh those new fans you've been able to bring in with your social media bring in with with netflix and entertain them right because it takes a special fan or a special person to like in eastern time zones wake up at 9 a.m right or 8 a.m for the russian grand prix just to watch a formula one race and spend that amount of your time on a weekend to like hang out and take the sport in as a whole and for Canada, I mean, geez, guys, we're getting from 400 to 500,000. And those are just average numbers of viewers for these races. And, you know, that's not even peak numbers. And, like, peak numbers have to be way more than, than that, right? I'm just giving you averages. So that shows that the fan base is, is sticking around. The fan base is definitely uh, engaged. And the more I think we can kind of get a little bit more rivalry or a little bit more controversy or a little bit more wheel banging going on the the, the bigger that number is going to get because 
you know, like you were saying, Tyler, you know, you've, 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 you've spoken with friends who you never even thought they would watch Formula One. Now right. they're watching Formula One. I was scrolling through Twitter the other day and some rando, I was like, some rando friend of mine was just like tweeting at Formula One. I'm like, what the, when? Like, when did that, <laughs> when did this happen? All of a sudden you're watching Formula One now? I'm like, okay, that's great. But like, you know, stick around because it's, it's only going to get better. So um, yeah, from, from that standpoint, I think if you can kind of keep those storylines moving along, keep the, uh, keep the dramatics uh, sort of coming, so to speak, I mean, I mean, yeah, it, it, the number is only going to continue to grow for sure. Yeah, those are all great points. And it's the topic really of today's conversation is just that. I mean, we have a lot of viewers and listeners who are obviously based in Europe and it's very different from their perspective looking at us here in North America because we have the four big sports leagues, NBA, NHL, NFL, Major League Baseball, and they dominate the the topic, the, the talking conversations of sports in Canada and in the United States. But we're seeing it change a little bit. Like you said, Tim, with this championship battle this year, a lot of people that you would never expect to be watching Formula One are now watching it. And not only that, but investing time into it. And when we get into the ratings, so of course in the United States, Formula One is airing on ESPN and ESPN2 occasionally. Mm -hmm. And then here in Canada, it's airing on TSN. And just starting on the American side of things, in the first nine races this season, viewership grew 39% compared to the 2019 season. In my opinion, yeah, yeah, pretty damn good number, considering, like you said, the time differences. We're talking most of these races are in 9 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, even earlier if you're in the western, on the west coast, like Los Angeles, for example, or Vancouver here in Canada. And you have some of the, the numbers here with the peak viewership. You had Silverstone, of course, which reached 1.29 million viewers, the third largest audience in the history of Formula One on ESPN. You had the Hungarian Grand Prix, 964,000, which was the highest ever rated Hungarian Grand Prix. So these are just some examples here of the growth of Formula One. And you could even see like when the race is airing on ESPN2, for example, the Monaco Grand Prix, 934,000 viewers, which beat the 2018 and 2019 race, which aired on the main ESPN channel. And then Tim, of course, you do a lot of work for TSN, which is Canada's leading sports network here in this country. And just by the way, check him out, tsn.ca. You can see a lot of Tim Haraney's work after Formula One races, which provides some excellent analysis. And we've got an average that's close to 400,000 here as well. You see some peak audiences of Monaco, for example, 460,000. So it, it really is very nice to see the growth of that sport. And how much of that do you think really is attributed to that Netflix series of Drive to Survive? Is it 70% of that, 80% more? I mean, it just really feels like that Netflix series was even bigger than what we might have expected. Yeah, I was hearing from uh, Zach Brown not too long ago talking about the impact that Drive to Survive has had on Formula One. And I think there was a number being thrown around like it was it's one of Netflix most watched shows on Netflix wow. like, ever. Wow. It's one of it's, it's like in the top like and so they were saying it's well, well north of 50 million viewers. That's insane. So, yeah, that's those are massive, massive numbers. That's a huge data pool of folks to grab information from to find out, you know, how else they can sell to these types of fans or whatever, right? That's the business side of of things, like we all know. But from the sporting uh, side of it, 
yeah, I just have to keep going back to making sure that that entertainment factor on the track is extremely worth sitting around and watching because if we get another like oh, France 2019, <laughs> I mean, they're not, people aren't hanging around to watch that. They're just, they're not, let's be honest with, with it, right? Like you need a sport that's going to be exciting. You need a sport that's um, going to be entertaining and you need to hold on to your fans and into that audience. Jumping back to Drive to Survive, I would say I didn't really notice like a huge, uh, I would say the turning point would be season three for Drive to Survive. Once season three kind of came out, then I really saw the sport sh shift um, big time. And I saw it shift on social media in particular. And at the same time that that engagement was coming up, uh, the, the, the Instagram, the Twitter, the YouTube of Formula One was also leveling up at the same time as well. And obviously, you're going to have this generation DTS, right? But I also think that you need to show some love for what F1 and Liberty Media have been doing with F1 TV. Um, with, yeah, like I was saying, the Instagram, the Twitter, the YouTube. Just because I think that's, I think that, that, that in itself is another fan base, right? That's another sort of demographic that you're, you're plugging into as well. And it's a younger demographic. And you're going after like, you know, the 11 year old, 12 year olds, uh, all the way up to 18 year olds. And then after you get to like 18 into, into the 20s, that's when you're seeing the, the drive to survive um, fan base starting to get accumulated as well. So I just think it's really smart how they're kind of doing it, right, guys? Because like, they're doing it from a standpoint of like, hey, we need to satisfy our hardcores who've been with us since day one. We need to satisfy... Um, our new older fan base is coming in. We need to satisfy our millennials and we need to take care of the Gen Z's and younger, right? And I don't know if you guys have noticed that as well, but from my perspective and everything that I've seen, I, I would say that was that that's kind of the direction everything has kind of gone. I think what's really impressed me with the drive to survive is the character building. Cause we, we see all these behind the scenes of different, especially here in North America. I mean, there's the hockey 24 seven behind the scenes. There's always a hard knocks in NFL. I think baseball did a couple behind the scenes ones as well. And I think you know, UFC does some stuff, boxing on Showtime. They do a whole bunch of behind the scenes. But there's something about the mysterious Formula One driver, right? Where, where you don't usually get to go behind the scenes and behind the curtain of these F1 drivers and these teams as well. I think that mysterious impact along with building these young drivers, because all these friends that I've been saying who have gone into F1, their favorite drivers aren't Lewis. They're, you know, they're not... Sebastian Vettel, they're George Russell, they're Lando Norris, and they're Max Verstappen, those mm -hmm. three. And I think that's very important because those are the young stars for the next generation coming up. And if they build those three drivers in particular up, mm -hmm. you're really going to see a, you know, a, a hardcore fan base stay with them as long as they're in F1 for the next 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, that's a great point uh, that you make, Tyler, because I was uh, – uh, so I – I swim with a, a, a group of people t twice a week and it was my first time back swimming on, uh, it was like, I think it was last Wednesday it was. And it has been at least 
a year and a half since I've been back in, in the pool. So yeah, dramatically out of shape to say the least, <laughs> <laughs> but outside of that, you know, got out of the pool, got chatting with some of, uh, you know, pe people I've known for quite a while. I just haven't gotten to see them or talk to them. And, um, one of them came up to me and was like, Oh my God, I got to tell you about drive to survive. Like I absolutely like love it. I had no idea just how fit like racing drivers have to be and their training regiment how strict it is and just how hardcore like these guys are in incredible shape and i'm like yeah i know i've been telling people that like for years <laughs> but nobody wants to seem to listen right so it, it's things like that i think that you know tyler that you, you mentioned that it's just such a great point right it's it's taking taking the average viewer peeling back the curtain um letting them see a little bit more of who the stars, I guess, should be, right, guys? Because, I mean, you know, you guys have been involved with Formula One for so long. Like, you understand that back in the day, it was about, like, the teams, right, guys? Yeah. It wasn't really about, like, the, the drivers. I mean, like, yeah, Senna, Pros, those guys were incredible. But, like, who remembers Alexander Burtz, right? I do. But you're the hardcores. <laughs> you're the hardcores, right? You guys are the ones who've been there from, from, from day one. So it's kind of like for the for, – new fans you're not going to grab them by just talking about a simple team it's per perfect example you make tyler is that you need to really flush out who these drivers are and their personalities alexander first name was like it was in the back of the brain somewhere there and all of a sudden now it's crept forward i don't remember him you don't know truly giancarlo fisichella yeah. you, you mean to tell me the casuals don't remember gaston mazakane oh, i never now. thought i'd be talking about him today <laughs> he, he, he wasn't in the notes so <laughs> yeah these are just some of the the great names we could definitely absolutely rattle off. incredible but you know, good good points from from the both of you from from that side, and I think also us being hardcore is it sometimes, and I see this with with reaction to like you were saying, Tim, the drive to survive generation. I think we have to realize as hardcore fans that it's not really made for us, and obviously there's valid criticisms to make of the series with some of the over the top editing, as oh, we yeah, should say, you know, sure. with the fake team radios <laughs> and things like that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I hope they cut that down for this season. And as a side note, I really hope they don't blow this season because really this 2021 championship has written yeah. itself they don't really need to do much other than just package the 10 episodes together in a in a coherent and efficient way but i think that we have to realize it's not necessarily made for us it's for people that have never watched the sport and are just getting into it mm -hmm. and you have to kind of welcome that audience in and mm -hmm. if it gets them in the door it's going to lead to future fan bases because let's be honest in the last couple of years in formula one it was a little bit touch and go with the older generation kind of turning off the channels and not watching the sport anymore and the risk of potentially the younger generation not being interested as well and now it kind of seems like that's flipped on its head and it's heading into the right direction yeah absolutely i mean the the fact that the, you know they were able to when they bought it from Bernie Ecclestone and where it was and how fast it's been transformed. You have to wonder, like, I mean, how many other leagues out there are 
thinking about doing something like this. I mean, I think I saw like the Toronto Maple Leafs or something are, are doing are doing something yeah. similar. I wanted to like write back like, hey, Drive to Survive called. <laughs> you know, they want their show back, right? But, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more uh, leagues trying to do something similar. I know, you know, there's like soccer's done a great job with some of that stuff that's on, uh, I believe it's on Amazon Prime. They've got a couple of good shows on there. And, um but yeah it, it's I, I think one of the other things that makes it so awesome is you know formula one has their own like media department right and they have their own like filming crews at the track and these guys i've seen the operation like these these people are are going hardcore as soon as 6 a.m rolls around they're there getting everything ready, waiting for all of the mechanics and team personnel to roll in at whatever it was, 8 30, 9 a.m. for the doors to open up. And they're shooting everything. And they're shooting all the way through the night until everyone is gone home. They have like in Montreal <laughs> yeah. in uh in twenty when did they see it? Twenty, I think it was twenty nineteen. So Montreal had redone uh the pit lane. And in part of the pit lane, there was all of the uh, Formula One camera people's equipment. And it was kind of just like lined up and all of these charged battery packs and new cameras (laughs) and new like HD discs and and whatever they had to do, they were running in and out of there, grabbing whatever they needed and you're getting out and getting to wherever else, you know, they needed to go. And so they're always filming. They're always shooting. Like their archive department must be huge. So I think like to make Drive to Survive and and to actually, you know, legit do it well, I, I think they wouldn't be able to do it without Formula One filming like a ton of that stuff because I really do feel that the, um, what is it, the box-to-box films people lean heavily on formula one for video stuff that they probably miss um which adds another layer to to the programming and you know tyler like you were saying like and chris you too i mean like this is a such an important year not to mess up because of all of the incredible like content that has been pumped out this season it's it it uh it writes itself Right. And it's kind of like one of those things where you're saying like, oh, I hope they don't pump in like the, the fake, you know, uh, team radio or, you know, you get the, the, the fake play by play guy c- calling part of the race. And it's kind of like, yeah, I don't think you need that this year. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it, especially the last few races coming up too with, um, you know, three, I, I'm going to say three new tracks just with the changes at Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. Um, I really hope that this Middle Eastern swing doesn't mess it up with, with this experimental track layouts that they have going on. So uh, I'm nervous, but I'm cautiously, cautiously optimistic that it will have a, a good finale. You know, um, like that giant hairpin turn they've created at Abu Dhabi? <laughs> I, I I, cautiously optimistic. <laughs> I want to see like a simulation. I want to see a simulation of this, Tyler. I want to see what I want to see what it looks like. Yeah. Like legit, either simulator or have like Red Bull send their test car there. I just want to see what that's going to look like because uh, I'm the same as you. It's kind of like I don't know if this is going to work or not. I mean, I hope it does. It looks like it's going to be really exciting. But yeah, who who knows? You know, if it's um, if it if it leans in the way that we want it to with on track overtakes, then 
hopefully the championship comes down to the last race and yeah. I have a great track. Well, we don't want a 2016 situation where Lewis is just backing the whole pack up, right? And it, that was just the most ridiculous thing that you could ever see for a championship. <laughs> so strategic by him, too, that season, right? Or that, oh, yeah. that race, right? Like, there were certain sections. I think I'm trying to remember what it was. It was like Sector, he he would pull away. And I'll see if I remember this correctly. Uh, so I've driven the track on the, on the, on the Ferrari simulator. So mm. I would say, so, so Sector 1 is where lewis would pull away and then once he got to sector two and three he started backing everybody up because i believe it was it was sebastian vettel chase chasing yeah. down rosberg right if rosberg was, or vettel had he got by rosberg then he would have lost the championship or something lewis had the win or something like that. yeah that's exactly what it was and it was right after the drs zone so he'd pull away so he wouldn't get so rosberg wouldn't get drs and then back everyone up and then, if I remember right, was that the double points year too? I, oh, no, that was fourteen. Uh, yeah, it was that was fourteen. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. okay, guys, yeah, I wasn't sure if that was double <laughs> points here. <laughs> but anyway, going back to to the whole North America, we'll, we'll, we'll save Italy <laughs> for Middle East. <laughs> um, we hopefully get a Canadian Grand Prix uh, next year. I really want it bad because I want to go, obviously. Um, but you know, I want Nicholas Latifi to have a home race and and to have Lance Stroll uh, back in. And being in front of I me, mean, this is we have two Canadian drivers on the grid. This is unprecedented for a Canadian yep. motorsport. This hasn't happened in you know ever, um, at least as far as I can remember. Maybe something in the 30s, I don't know. Um, but to Liberty's push to expand all this in Canada, and of course in the U.S. now with Miami next year. Um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, there's some up and coming U.S. drivers that are coming up, and uh, I've been mentioning that a certain. IndyCar NASCAR team should be buying into F1 uh, in Penske racing. Um, but it, with all this push, it's not, it's, it has to be the perfect opportunity for these things to happen in the United States and all here in Canada as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, making that push to get the U.S. market, such a big one uh, for them to have, especially when you're owned by an American like media conglomerate, right? Like it's, it's so important for Formula One to be a big sport in the United States. And, um, oh boy, I mean, if they can get a driver into F1, that'd be huge. And then also onto like a competitive team as well. That would be, that'd be even bigger. I mean, you have a lot of really talented Americans like coming up through the Formula One ladder system, you know, particular Logan Sargent, uh, Juan Manuel Correa, and then Jack Crawford as well. I mean, a lot of good young American talent that in all honesty, I haven't seen in quite a while in terms of like the field having that many Americans in it. And that's what I mean. It's, it's like, you know, we had years where you would have one American, maybe two, maybe, I mean, this season they had like four, like it was yeah. really impressive in like the FI in, in the uh, formula three uh, championship extremely impressive so that is very important uh for formula one it all depends on like how are these americans going to be able to to move up right because the next step is going to have to be formula two i mean logan Sargent had an incredible uh 2020 season i mean he almost won the championship and he's still stuck in formula three it's kind of like this guy should be moved up to formula two you know, he may not have the backing that's needed 
to make that jump because you know looking at a formula two budget i mean i think the last i heard it's close to like four to seven million like for a season somewhere in that range i'm like who's got that kind of money to spend <laughs> like yeah. seriously especially if you're ultra talented so it's it's one of those things where you, you're gonna have to put that someone will have to put pressure on formula one to do something about it whether that be liberty media putting pressure on formula one to, to do something or, or someone else but yeah, someone's going to have to get in here and start giving these Americans uh, an extra push so they can get into that Formula 2 category and kind of really start to show uh, what they can do in terms of um, the drivers. Now, as for the teams, obviously, you know, you got Haas in there. But, yeah, like you said, Tommy, I mean, one of the – actually, one of the people I've heard being interested in getting into Formula 1 is Michael Andretti. Uh, so, that makes sense. So that would be interesting to see him get – now, whether that is to just get in with – partnering with another team or if it's getting in and trying to start fresh which would be a little more difficult and that's what that that's this is another conversation for a whole other dime probably (laughs) but like starting a new formula one team is not an easy thing to do and like bringing you know whatever 200 million or 250 million i mean that's not going to get it done to get a team up off the ground but yeah i could see i can see michael andretti buying into formula one someday for sure 100 percent it's been my i've said this i say this maybe every two podcasts and i'm chris always has a laugh whenever i say it but we need more teams in f1 there's too much talent there's too many drivers that aren't on the grid and like 24 cars even 26 cars i think would be amazing on the grid in f1 yeah absolutely it's kind of like you can you can start thinking of all these different scenarios of how to get them and whether or not these teams want to do it right so what's to say they can't get three cars on one team. Like if you look at IndyCar, obviously mm-hmm. the budget there, it's a little more realistic, right? You can get um, four, five cars in uh, in some instances, maybe even six for the Indy 500 of some sorts onto the grid into one in one team. It's kind of like, well, if you're Formula One and you're going to start bringing that budget cap down, what's to say you can't bring it down just a tiny bit more and introduce a third car on your team for another driver say you leave that seat open for a junior driver like i think that's so important i think you need that young um, hungry talent coming through the ranks because that's not only going to push them but that's also going to push like the veterans you know what i mean like that's going to push like guys like Sebastian Vettel, it's going to push like Lewis, the Lewis Hamiltons. So I think it's important on all sorts of levels, but it's kind of sad sometimes when you see some of these younger drivers who aren't getting the opportunity that they so much uh, deserve. You know, we're, we're probably going to see a few of those drivers drop out of maybe racing altogether at the end of this Formula 2 season and, and even Formula 3 drivers. So it's, yeah, it's quite sad. So I just hope they can try and figure out some sort of a ladder system for uh, for some of the top talent they got there because there's a lot of it. Absolutely. And that part is going to move on to the next topics in discussing just not just Formula One here in North America, but like you mentioned, IndyCar, because there's a lot of crossover. Just quickly before we move off of Formula One, you just really touched on it there, which is the expense of the sport, not just Formula One, but Formula Two, like you said. That's a ridiculous amount of money to just try and compete in a Formula 2 season. 
And we know that Liberty Media, and of course, especially when you get into the North American market, it's really a lot about money and it's a lot about business. And we as fans, we really only care about the motorsport side of things. We don't really know that much about the business or ultimately we don't really care that much about the business. But do you also see a, a risk in them trying to expand in the United States that they're going to become too commercial? Because if we're being honest, guys, do we really need a Miami Grand Prix? When we have tracks like Laguna Seca, you know, Road America, you Road name Atlanta. it. Yeah, Road Atlanta. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Streets of Toronto. I mean, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would be a little bit too much for an F1 car. But but there are some really great tracks in, in the United States that are just designated road courses that IndyCar races on a lot, even the, the one at Indianapolis, which they used to race at. So is there potential maybe that they're going to be a little bit too commercial and just trying to make as much money as possible and we're going to see these crazy races and, and the racing isn't going to be as great because it's you know not a, a traditional circuit? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point that you make. I mean, part part of, I guess part of me being around and involved in the sport since I was like nine years old wants to see them go back to these old school traditional tracks. The ones that I grew up racing on, you know, cutting my teeth on, you know, Watkins Glen, Laguna Seca, like you said, honestly, man, to see those cars at road America would blow my brains out. It would be absolutely incredible. I mean, IndyCar is incredible to see their testing and like Atlantic cars was like, so, I would love to see them tackle some of the really old school um, USA racetracks. I really would. It would offer so much great racing because, you know, you would be punished for the mistakes that you make where, you know, on some of these newer designed racetracks, it's you make a mistake and it's like, oh, you get a five second penalty. Uh, (laughs) What? Like what? Like when I made a mistake, it was like into the wall or stuck in a sand trap somewhere right? You really had to be so on it and you couldn't go over the limit of like the track because if you did, you were definitely going off where here it's like, they're going to go off the track a bit, but they probably would gain an advantage. And so five second time penalty or your lap gets deleted. And so that part of me, I would really love to see them go back to some old school racetracks. The other part of me understands that yes, this is a business and they need to introduce it into some bigger markets where um, they can attack, I guess, a different audience and pull in a younger audience as well and go to places where there's more population. I mean, we saw that with uh, IndyCar, you know, when they really started to introduce the street circuits, they were bringing IndyCar to the people. And so similar to to F1, when you go to the, the States, they're really, I think, looking at trying to bring Formula One to the people with this uh, Miami Grand Prix, because, you know, let's be honest, Coda is not close to downtown Austin. I've been there, you know, so I, I know. So, I mean, I think it's a smart move by Formula One. It's definitely going to be exciting. I think they want to try and make it like a Monaco light sort of deal. I mean, I'm hoping the track is going to be cool. I've seen some renderings of it and seeing them starting to build it gets me, uh, it does get me excited, you know, it really does. But I honestly think at some point or another, Roger Penske is going to enter the chat here at some point, and we are going to start talk talking about you know Formula One going to Indianapolis at some point to race on that um, road course that they have there, like they did uh, in the past. And since Roger you know bought 
IndyCar, bought IMS. That was such a smart business move because now he can do so much with that facility. Um, you know, we were, a bunch of us were just sitting around talking and we were just like, he could do a 24 hours of Indianapolis here. Like if you put in a little bit more stadium lighting or something like that, you could do a 24 hour race here. No questions, none whatsoever. You could do night races for sure. You put in stadium lighting. So I could see, I could see that happening at some point where, where, when, I mean, when, I mean, that's going to be the question, right? I, I think like they will need a third race in the United States at some point. I really do. And I think, I think they should start looking at the calendar, like calendar wise of how they're going to, how they're going to start attacking that. I mean, the calendar is going to be out on October 15th. And from what I understand, you know, we're going to have Miami in May. And then I believe, you know, Canada is going to get bumped over to the middle of June again somewhere. And then you're going to have Coda off in the distance again, something similar. And it's kind of like, okay, well, instead of flying all this stuff all the way around, it's like, well, why can't we just keep everything sort of on the North American side? Like, why can't we go to Miami, then come up to Canada, then go down to Coda, then go to Mexico, then hit Brazil? So then you've kind of got that, that structure down of time zones right? You know, you're going to get your audiences on the Sundays, you know, you're going to get them at a decent time in the afternoon, and then send them everybody back over and do like the European leg or something like that. And you kind of go back to a 9am sort of schedule. So I don't know if the schedule has anything to do with it uh, as well. I don't know if that needs a bit of a shake up to kind of maybe cater to certain parts of the world, who knows, but yeah, I guess we'll have to guess we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, I would I would love to see them tackle some of those old school racetracks for sure. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I mean, IndyCar was absolutely awesome in 2021. I mean, this championship was absolutely incredible. No one saw Alex Palou coming out of nowhere to win this championship. And to see, uh, you know, a lot of the younger drivers like, you know, Patricio Award, who is, that guy's awesome to watch, you know, ring a race car's neck because Palou was very like, smooth and he was very meticulous he was uh he, he was like a surgeon really smooth hands and everything and and then you saw a ward and it looked like he was wrestling a bull <laughs> like, it was absolutely awesome the guy has got the fastest set of hands i've ever seen on a driver absolutely incredible